Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today, I'm talking with Danny Ryan, who is the coordinator of the Greater ETH2 effort. Uh, and Danny is in an interesting position. He's one of those uh, people that can go deep into the weeds with code, but then also zoom all the way out and explain it to the non-technical folk uh, like me. And so we went through a little bit of Danny's pre-Ethereum history and where he uh, got his skills from. And, and it turns out he's got a little bit of an entrepreneur in him. Uh, and then we asked some greater questions as to why Danny feels, as somebody who works for the EF and kind of doesn't really have a boss, where he gets his accountability from for waking up every single day and contributing to Ethereum when no one actually forces him to do that. Uh, and then also exp uh, expanding that to the other developers as well. We also talk a lot about this recent in, uh, dev interop event and what it's like to be there as a developer. And then also I share my perspective as what it's like to view these things from the outside. And then we finish off with an interesting conversation about, uh, I asked Danny whether he is an optimist or a pessimist and what about the world makes him what it is. And I thought his answer for that was pretty interesting. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into this conversation with Danny Ryan. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Alchemix is one of the coolest new DeFi apps on the scene. Alchemix allows you to deposit the DAI stablecoin into its vaults, which earns some of the highest yield that DeFi has to offer. And then you can get a loan against the DAI you deposited. So every $1,000 you deposit to Alchemix, you can take out a $500 loan. But here's the crazy part. The loan pays itself back. Alchemix uses the yield from your deposited DAI to pay back any loan that you've borrowed from the Alchemix application. It's a negative interest bearing loan where the size of your line of credit is determined by the number of dollars you've deposited into Alchemix. It is the ultimate savings account. And brand new to Alchemix is its ETH vault, where you can deposit Ether into the application and borrow Ether against your deposits while having your Ether slowly be paid back to you over time. Alchemix lets you get your interest payments on your deposits paid to you upfront. Check out the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi. That's A-L-C-H- E-M-I-X dot F-I. And make sure you join their extremely vibrant Discord if you want to participate in governance or have any questions about the project. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH in Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing, and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has, and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, 
grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your DeFi apps all in one place. Hey, Danny. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah? Having a good Hanging time? Hanging out in my basement. Yeah. <laughs> where's, where's your basement? Where in the world is your basement? Can I dox you as the first thing I ask on the show? Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. I don't think it's a secret. Uh, Boulder, Colorado. Ah, uh, one of the Co Colorado clans, huh? Yeah, yeah, I've been here for a couple of years. Yeah, the uh, Michael Wong, the the guy who does uh, culture and memes at, at Bankless, jokes about how all the Colorado people are really into public goods and have long hair. <laughs> well, I won't pull it down, but I think I have the longest of the hair. Longer than Milwaukee? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, my hair's to my waist. What? Yes, I'll actually pull it down. Oh my god, really? Yeah. It's usually in a braid if right. it's down, which, you know. Oh, my God. It is the longest hair. Wow. You have the longest hair in all of Ethereum. Look at that. that I think is... I might. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. How long have you been growing that thing out? I don't really know. I mean, a while. I, I think. Before you were in Ethereum? Yeah, but probably like three years ago, I cut off like six inches. <laughs> just i just wanted to be six inches shorter <laughs> three feet the people too tell long. me you're supposed to you're supposed to trim it to keep it healthy but i know right. i don't follow the guidance <laughs> well wow i've already learned something new about you so or so early into this show um danny i want to i want to hear about uh your time before ethereum what did you do what, what what were you doing right before you got into ethereum i was doing a mix of various like software and business consulting mm-hmm so my my niche was probably like not just being a hired hand, uh, but also like working closely with small business CEOs to like help them figure out how technology could actually make their their lives better. Some of this was like helping like literally small businesses in like Louisiana that like didn't know databases existed or like how to track customers and things like that. And that was you could make a big impact. But I also like I also did a lot of work with a company called Kidding Co, uh, which was like an Airbnb. Uh, knockoff for families traveling with kids. So I built a lot of that stuff and like worked closely with the CEO on, I don't know, strategy and that kind of stuff. Were you like working as an individual or was it under a company? Um, always, I mean, as a, as a company, but just as a front for myself, you know, okay. limit, some limits and liability and help with taxes and that kind of stuff. And so your, your typical client was like, uh, kind of a boomer that didn't really know technology is what it is. Is that is that the vibe? It was a it was a bit of a mix. You know, I think it was it was actually not boomers. It was probably like thirty somethings mm -hmm. that were like you know go getter businessmen that just hadn't awoken to all the things that technology could do for themselves. Was being an entrepreneur one of like? Have you always been an entrepreneur? Um, or would, before that, did you ever like work for a company? Ever work for a nine to five? I've never had a a real job. I don't think. Really? Um, I started a screen printing company when I was 15. Uh -huh. uh, it still runs today. Um, no that's way. my fallback. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> my business partner and best friend, that's his full-time gig, but uh, I'm still involved somewhat. No way. Okay. Uh, just, uh, this is like apparel, right? Just like making cool shirts and, and stuff like that. You started that when you were 15? Yeah. I mean, we primarily do it for other people. So like right. they can take the risk on of like their cool shirt and try to sell it. You just make <laughs> and it. we'll... Uh, yeah, we, we do like a hundred to ten thousand piece orders for all sorts of different entities. We got a shop in Louisiana. Okay, so so would you say that you've always had some sort of entrepreneur DNA part of you? I would, pre yeah, yeah, and I, I've always had the desire to not have a normal job right. and to dictate my time on my my own uh, standard. And this is probably the most normal of a job I have. I mean, it's like I work for an entity. Mm -hmm. I and I I um. 
you know, I don't, I don't have hours, but I have things that I'm trying to do and I get paid to do them. Uh, but it's, it's entrepreneurial in the sense that like no one tells me what to do. Right. <laughs> and I just, uh, see, I see what needs to be done and, and kind of try to bring the value where I can. Definitely. Yeah. So you are, you are your own leader, even though you have a paycheck, which is a, the fact that the EF is the, the most normal job you've ever had is absolutely insane. <laughs> uh, when did you learn to code? In college, I actually, I've, I've always like used computers, uh, and was like a power user probably, but I, I, I never dipped into, into coding until I had to take a computer science course for a mechanical and aerospace engineering degree I was doing. Um, and then, and this is my sophomore year of college and I, I loved the class and switched my major and went all in. And I, you know, and was like, felt like a late bloomer, you know, like I'm never going to make it in computer science or programming. Cause like people have been doing this since they were two, right. uh, but it worked out. It's working out. Yeah. Uh, what, what about code just resonated with you? It felt immediately like the most sane way to get through college. Cause it was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was doing the mechanical and aerospace engineering degrees. I thought, cause I thought it would like build things. Um, but you didn't really build stuff at my school until junior or senior year. Whereas day zero of the programming class, I was like building cool little things. And, and that just kind of struck me. Um, and it, it felt like solving puzzles and I felt like I could, I could spend the rest of my college career solving puzzles and it would get me, get me through school at least. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, is the builder DNA also in you as well? Like whatever you, whatever medium you have to build something, the easiest and the fastest is what resonates? Probably so. Uh, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm a builder and then I see my wife who's like sewing and like making dresses and, and like it's always building shit, like literally always building shit. And I'm like, I'm not much of a builder. <laughs> Wait, you, you don't think you're much of a builder? Um, I am a communicator. I'm a prototyper. I like to think deeply about hard problems, mm-hmm. but like at a certain point, I'm also not the guy who builds it, you know, and nor do I think I'm the right one. Like if you look at the, say like the Sigma prime team, mm-hmm. you know, Paul's a builder, mm-hmm. Paul like wrecks building lighthouse and like is, it can, is just constructing crazy shit. I mean, proto proto is a builder too. And I build things, but I do a lot of other things too. And like, I, I if I spend all of my time trying to build things and trying to bring something totally to production in terms from my own hands, it's, it, I don't get, I have a hard time doing that. Yeah. I have a hard time like focusing quite like that. So I like the mix of stuff I do. I made this uh, mistake with Kevin Owaki once, or maybe it's actually Ryan that uh, alluded to Steve Jobs and Kevin was like, I don't, I don't like that analogy, but I'm going to do it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it do it anyways, where, um, there, uh, Steve Wozniak was uh, yelling at Steve Jobs saying, what is it that you actually do? Like, what are, what are your skills? Like you, you don't actually build anything. And uh, Steve Jobs gives this anecdote of like uh, uh, somebody going up to a, a, a conductor of an orchestra and asking more or less the same question. Like, what do you do that a metronome can't do? And the, or- the, or the conductor gets really, really offended, obviously. Uh, and, he, and he goes, well, you know, the, the trumpeteer plays the trumpet and then the, you know, the flutist plays the flute. I play the orchestra, right? Like that, that's his <laughs> instrument. Would you say that that uh, metaphor is kind of apt for how you are the conductor of all the ETH2 client teams? I, I will not take like the Steve Jobs analogy direct. I, I cannot accept that. But I will say 
to a certain extent because like the conductor probably played an instrument most of his life and knows and knows music inside and out you know knows how to communicate about the music and things like that and so to a certain extent sure yeah um you know and i and i i, I enjoy that so what has it been like to be the I kind of, so the other metaphor that I, I think I have for what I think you do is like kind of like a, a traffic control man for, <laughs> for, for all of the, the different just like packets of communication data that all the different client teams um, talk about. We were, me and Ryan were just got out of done uh, re recording a weekly roll up and we were reading um, one of the uh, ZK roll ups like announcement blog posts. And we were just trying to unpack their blog posts over and over and over again. And like, it was very, very clear that a developer wrote this blog post, not a communicator. Uh, so like as somebody who is a good communicator, how is it, what's it been like to like communicate with all these like, you know, developers who speak in this very, very like technical, non-communicative way? Uh, it's fun. I mean, I, I can speak the language and I, I i like i don't just communicate like I, in this in this interop last week like i did i did a lot of communication i did a lot of kind of organization stuff but i you know i'm i'm in the weeds like figuring out like the optimizing the engine api right and like figuring out how that's actually going to run and like some of the edge cases and stuff and so like i i think if i could not get deep into it that i would be i would not be effective at what i'm doing or what i've been doing in the past few years um and so on the technical side, it's very fun. And then I really enjoy explaining things. I really enjoy teaching. And so I really enjoy like finding the right metaphor, the right like thing, analogy to, to communicate uh, a technical concept to people who maybe aren't as deep in the weeds. And so because I get to deep, I get to be deep in the weeds, then I also get to then turn around on the other side and communicate outward. Um, so when you're at these uh, dev interop events where everyone there speaks code, like speaks developer, you don't need to use metaphors, right? Like that's, that's metaphors are for you to communicate to people like me or, or do metaphors, are they useful in that environment? Like what are the communication skills there? <clears throat> that's an interesting question. The metaphors are different, but they're still valuable. They're still like, sometimes you're talking about something very complicated and like if you can abstract it, and be able to talk about it more from a higher level. Like one, you're going to get the three people in the room over here that knew what was going on and the four people over here that, that didn't quite yet. You're going to help expedite that process, which is good. Um, and also just it, it helps. Like we all have to think about different, like we have to be able to think about different layers of abstraction. So like once we have a good metaphor, even though we've like worked on the minute details of, of thing A and thing B, but once we have a, a metaphor for how thing A and thing B kind of live together at a higher level once you have the details worked out then you can talk about that higher level and not have to worry about the details unless you like need to open it back up and go back in so they're very they're very valuable yeah they're not the same metaphors all the time sometimes they cross uh you know sometimes they're good for educating an outside audience and for communicating amongst oneself um but they're certainly valuable uh, computer science is all about abstraction and that's you know metaphors in a certain sense is there a specific event that comes to mind when like you just could not figure out how to get two teams to communicate or you couldn't communicate with someone is it was there ever like a big like breakdown in communication that that's happened that's the story you can tell us about hmm anything come to mind there 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 are some things um and there they these types of things are if, if you talk to my wife would be the things that over the past three years three four years have like stressed me out the most is this communication breakdowns um i will probably I will not go in too deep about any one of them. I will sure. say that early on in 
the ETH2 beacon chain journey, um, we had done a lot of work on consensus, a lot of work on the core security, the core state transition, how these things come together. But the the networking was not in full view. Um, and there and there was a bit of a lack of expertise on the networking and ownership over it. And when it when we got there, that was probably one of the hardest times is just that there were parties on both sides of the aisle that thought very, very different things about how the networking should be built and how it should look. Um, and it, it like almost drove me crazy because I could not I could not like it took probably months to get past and resolve uh, an issue. And, and ultimately it came down to just being like, we're going to do it this way. We can't do it both ways. Sorry. You know, and usually we're better at compromise. Usually we're better at uh, finding a solution where all the parties are like, eventually all the parties are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because, which is really good. I think, I think in Ethereum, most people operating at this layer one, like they truly want to find the right solution. And like, often we propose solutions that get iterated on or just totally shut down. And like, you have to do that. And most people are very good at that and don't bring a lot of ego to their solutions. Um, and because of that, I don't think we get to these like weird impasses where we're just bike shedding to death. I mean, we bike shed certainly, but like not about what, the important what's things. Bike shedding? <laughs> um, it is a term used quite a bit, uh, but the idea is we're building a bike shed, mm -hmm. you and I, and obviously bike sheds need like, foundation they probably need a concrete foundation they need walls they maybe need a door all sorts of stuff you maybe even need locks for your bikes for security but like instead of dealing with all that we're just sitting here arguing about like the color we're going to paint the shed you know and the shed doesn't even exist yet mm -hmm. um and so bike shedding is when uh people get hung up on some sort of minute detail that like Impedes doesn't progress. really matter and we're not like we, we're not even getting to the meat of it so like the name of an api endpoint like that could be the thing that is bike shed to oblivion because there's no, there's no correct name. There's literally no correct answer. Like there's, there's, it, it becomes a matter of opinion. And once you get to these areas that are a bit more of a matter of opinion rather than like some sort of absolute correctness and nothing has an absolute correctness, but there's certainly things that like get closer in that direction. But when you get farther away from that direction, like naming things like that, you get, you get into bike shedding. Um, and if you look at like all core dev calls, sometimes it'll be like, 20% meat and then 80% bike shedding. <laughs> right. But then if you say that people are bike shedding, then somebody that really cares about the issue would be like, this isn't bike shedding. This is really, really important. So <laughs> right. they don't think they're bike shedding there. They think that they are pre presenting is, the objective. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to un unpack that a little bit because build, building Ethereum, no one knows what Ethereum is. It's kind of like the internet and like the future of Ethereum <laughs> is like what Ethereum should be is a subjective thing right we don't have any objective like right. reference point for what we are trying to build when we're building ethereum so like you said all all choices are subjective and some are right. some are easier to come to consensus to versus mm -hmm. others would you would you say like one way to describe your role is that like you are the facilitator of all these subjective decisions some of these subjective decisions all the teams have consensus on. So we can just leave that, you know, put that in the rearview mirror, but perhaps a lot of them need to have, you know, powwows and deliberation and debriefs about how and why choices are made. So would you say like your role has been to be the facilitator of these conversations about these subjective choices? That's, that's one of my roles. I'd say that's one of my roles. And the, we, we, the, like, 
it is subjective. There is no absolute as to where we're going, but there are design considerations. There are like deep philosophical things that are guiding us. Um, obviously, like we don't have to all agree on them all, but like you can go, we can, you can begin to cite, you be like, we've been working on proof of stake for like six years. And like, it has these, the, like these, these are things we're trying to achieve. And like the ethos of the community is kind of rallied around this, you know? And so that becomes something to help you help guide you. But also there's other design considerations, like complexity is the, the enemy of everything in, in uh, consensus systems. And so like minimizing complexity, even at the cost of, of, some advanced feature set or like optim some optimization often, you know, is a guiding light. And that, you know, is generally agreed upon, you know, but you, maybe there's 5% of engineers in this process that like, they're not afraid of complexity at all. Right. So there, you know, there's a bit of, there's like a compromise that has to happen there. So, um, so yeah, subjective, but the, the, there's this, there's this like ethos and philosophy and, and kind of design guiding, guiding, like, guiding light that's guiding us um and sometimes i have to help try to contextualize that sometimes i have to help try to figure out what the community thinks is the designing light or the 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 priorities and like i don't know it's all messy right so yes you you said uh values and ethos will help guide the decisions how, how much how well defined do you think that actually is because like if you really want to get down to it there's no actual source of single source of truth for anything right. in this universe like, are there any very, very concrete things that like, well, this choice abides by this set of values. Uh, obviously, like decentralization is perhaps a very concrete value yeah. that no one yeah. disagrees with. Um, are there any other values that like you can like name for, for, for us here? But even decentralization is, is on a spectrum. Sure. And so like, right. you know, the Bitcoiners might say that we've we've like gone off the deep end on, you know, in terms of it being some sort of centralized process or centralized protocol or something like that. And I don't, I don't agree with that, but then I think other protocols have gone off the deep end in terms of centralization and design considerations and things like that. So, um, decentralization, certainly top one, um, decentralization also there, there's many different things that can mean, um, often in protocol design, we're considering like it, not being able to be captured uh, by powerful interests, it not being able to be censored and things like that. Um, and the, I would say there's, there's a, an ethos of in Ethereum of assuming that the world as it is today and the way the world interacts with blockchains today is not as the world will be in five, 10 or 20 years. Um, so you end up seeing protocols that they make what I would, uh, what pe people consider uh, pretty large compromises because, well, this is how it works. You know, no one's doing this, no one's doing that. Like it's going to be fine. Uh, whereas there's a very strong ethos in, in Ethereum, assuming that something that can be captured will likely attempt to be attempted to be captured uh, if it's valuable enough. And we're attempting to build things that are very big and very valuable. Um, and so the, we're not, we're not, we're trying to think about like, you know, what, what happens when a state actor cares? What happens when, you know, some mega cartel of, uh, some of the richest people in the world care, like that kind of stuff. What happens when, when the banks are trying to shut it down? Um, whereas, and so that, that's definitely, it's definitely a design consideration. What are the other philosophies? Um, that proof of stakes better than proof of work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could, I that could, seems I could pretty write... binary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's no, there's there might be a spectrum. <laughs> yeah. It might be a, we, were, we were trying to do hybrid proof of work, proof of stake at one point. So that's, that's, that's the spectrum. Although I don't think that was actually a good idea, even though I wrote the EIP. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but the yeah, I mean, it, it's messy. It's messy. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what what's something that could be captured? Because like obviously all of Ethereum is like or like you know enough stake to validate the chain in ways that you deem appropriate. Mm-hmm. Like obviously having enough ether, that's one way to get capture. But like, what what are the other like mechanisms that like maybe somebody that's not developer minded like I am wouldn't think of that is like a an attack point that you guys try and harden up? Well, you would. Well, I think that this is this is something you would think about, which is uh, capture the governance process. Sure. You know, like the fact that you can upgrade Ethereum is dangerous. Right. Um, the fact that we can upgrade Ethereum is dangerous, and it probably becomes increasingly so as the powers that be give a shit about this stuff you know like there's there's a bunch of developers a bunch of community members there's a bunch of signals and stuff and and those um, i'm certain could all be manipulated and i don't think that's what's happening today but i do think that that could happen in the future right what what about something that actually involves writing code in a specific way where if we write the code this way like it might be open for capture in the future yeah yeah let's think um one thing that comes to mind is is uh P2P networking, you know, it's, we make assumptions about the amount of honest actors on a network. We make assumptions about being able to connect and being able to get in and actually find the right network. Um, and some of that, the P2P stuff in general actually becomes a bit like, uh, a bit more, a bit harder to define in an objective way. Like consensus mechanisms, you can be like, if two alternative chain histories were created, a minimum of this amount of stake is slashable. Like that, you can make, you're very clear to define it. Whereas like defining someone being um, griefed on a P2P network and, and the, all the vectors there and, and are being eclipsed and things like that is usually a bit, usually a bit tougher. And so um, definitely places that you have to, uh, it's easy to not harden that, I guess is the, is the point, but you, you got to spend the time doing that. Let me think dependencies. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Um reducing your the the software dependencies that you have um reduces the ability for people to kind of make their way into your code unsuspectingly uh like for example if you had a dependency for a big integer library some random library and like one guy maintains it and like your client is is running on this then all of a sudden that one guy can potentially like get a bug in that dependency that then affects all the arithmetic in your client, which could then lead to X, Y, Z bug, you know, printing a million ether or something like that. Uh, multi-client helps us there. Uh, but it's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different entry points. Not even an attack vector that I even knew existed. (laughs) (laughs) They're called, that's called a a supply chain attack on the, on the software itself, Uh, but there's hardware supply chain attacks too. Um, Mm -hmm. and apparently, you know, well, there's a lot of stuff there, but the like you could imagine there being some sort of box that people love to stake on, and you literally just bug the hardware and you steal people's keys. Right. Yeah, yeah. but that's not your responsibility. It's not, but it's worth considering if there are safe ways to try to prevent that. I mean, one consideration for that would be like the separation of of the active staking key and the withdrawal credentials. Right. You know, by doing that, by by having the ultimate ownership of funds being a key that could be much colder. And maybe on a hardware wallet, right. you know, protects you against certain supply chain attacks. At least, you know, you could these those attacks could still potentially steal keys, but and could get you slashed. But you maybe lose one ETH instead of thirty two ETH. Right. So what, what you're there talking- are there are protocol design considerations there. 
what, what you're talking about, I think for, for listeners are, uh, who didn't follow that, is that when you stake your 32 Ether, you predetermine the out go, outbound Ethereum address where when you unstake that Ether, where that Ether actually goes. So when you unstake your Ether, rather than just like uh, unstake my Ether and send it to this address, you actually give your Ethereum address that it will be unstaked to when it is unstaked. That was right, right? Right. 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 So you, you, you talked about... Um, uh, how there are some assumptions that are made in the Ethereum protocol. And this is, of course, a subjective uh, decision that must be made. Um, with, with Historically, with all these client teams and making these decisions, is, are people generally come to consensus about these things, about where what the assumption level should be? Or is it a bunch of, like, is there a disagreement or uh, t- tend toward disagreement or tend toward agreement? What's that process like? Case by case basis? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of case case by case basis. I think that the people that are working on, you know, the, the proof of stake consensus aspect of this protocol, one, inherited a lot. So inherited a lot of the philosophy and a lot of the design considerations from ETH1, from the existing proof of work chain. Um, and, uh, you know, a few core people wrote a lot of the, the initial specifications. So like myself, Vitalik, Justin Drake, and others. And so those initial specifications are grounded deeply with a certain philosophy. Uh, but then design and considerations ripple outward from there. So one, you know, we, we iterate quite a bit on specifications with engineers and, and teams. And then the specifications only contain so much. So engineers are ultimately making decisions. But I think they are grounded very deeply in, in a certain ethos. But you do see a bit of a, you, you see different philosophical decisions coming out in different clients. Um, so maybe like an enterprise client might cut corners here or there to uh, make things nice for enterprise or make, you know, some user experience really nice. Whereas like a, a client that wants to be running on, you know, unstoppable embedded hardware and like routers and all sorts of stuff all over the world, like they might have like a different, you know, standard that they're they're holding to and maybe it makes the UX worse. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Danny thus far. Stay tuned for the second half of the show where we talk further about the Dev Interop event and also Danny's optimism or pessimism about the future of the world and what he can do about that. I had a fantastic time talking with Danny here, but first, before we get there, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi. And now it's live with over a hundred projects deployed. Gas fees on the Ethereum L1 sucks. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. And that's why teams like Arbitrum have been hard at work developing layer two solutions that makes transactions on Ethereum cheap and instant. Arbitrum increases Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. That's why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Many DeFi applications that are on the Ethereum layer one are migrating over to layer twos like Arbitrum, and some are even skipping over layer ones and deploying directly on layer twos. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum. So go to bridge.arbitrum.io and start bridging over your Ether or any of the tokens listed and start having a DeFi experience that you've always wanted. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. 
Aave version 2 has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. One of my favorite Aave features is the ability to select a stable interest rate. Once I've selected a stable interest rate, I'm protected against any interest rate volatility that may happen in DeFi and allows me to plan my DeFi finances for the long term. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Switching gears a little bit here, although I think this conversation is going to weave in and out a little bit, is uh, uh, the culture around all of these uh, client devs. Um, uh, not none of them work for the EF. They kind of they correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, like they all kind of have their own internal treasury that they use to pay out all of the developers. But I feel like the the vibe of the job is they're all kind of kind of what you described your job at the EF is like. Well, you receive a paycheck, but you don't really answer to anyone you kind of just have your your job so everyone's a lot more loose loosely organized everyone kind of just like gets up and works loosely works what, what's so like the the answer is probably obvious is but uh like when you get up in the morning and like i don't i don't i don't think you have a boss um or maybe you technically do but you probably doesn't feel like you do um like what keeps you accountable like why what why does danny actually do the things that are in his job description I ask myself that sometimes. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a job description, but your I, perceived job job description. Yeah, I because I care. I care a lot, and I don't know why. I mean, I think I know why, but sometimes you know, throughout the years, it ebbs and flows in different directions. But like, I cannot help myself. Like, I cannot. I cannot not wake up and immediately like figure out what the new problem is, or wake up and like realize that if I don't do x y or z that the merge literally might be delayed by two weeks because we're like trying to get the specs out and stuff and like i just i i care and then i care because i care about the technology but i also like the way it's all structured is it's all this it's all this open source project that we're building together it's and 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 it's a community so like the accountability doesn't necessarily come from a direct boss or anything the accountability comes from the fact that i'm a member of this community building this thing and and i have i have this emergent responsibility building this thing with these people and if i if i didn't do what i thought i could do and do my best to do so um i would be uh not giving giving my my all to this community that i i care about and i'm deeply integrated in um, and that's there's a community angle there's the like i care about shipping this piece of technology um and then i, I don't know there's there's a certain level of of obsession um, that I and uh, pretty much everyone else I work with has. Um, and that's probably because of the community thing. It's probably because of the impact. But it's just like someone someone mentioned it. Like Ethereum is just the ultimate nerd snipe. Um, and I, I, the word nerd isn't even the right word. Like I don't necessarily consider myself a nerd, but just the like it is such an interesting problem. It is such like the combination of, of – uh, economics and cryptography and game theory and and programming and distributed systems like it's unbelievable it's like hilariously interesting um and 
it, it's captivated me for many years now. I just had to look up nerd snipe. <laughs> so for, for, for those that also needed to look up uh, nerd snipe, nerd sniping is a slang term that describes a particularly interesting problem that is presented to a nerd, often a physicist, tech geek, or mathematician. The nerd stops all activity to devote attention to solving the problem, often at his or her own peril. Danny, do you feel like at, at your own, do you feel in peril at, at times because of Ethereum? sometimes but sometimes i feel like ethereum, ethereum holds you hostage <laughs> i think it might i think it might I, i'm serious like i've been infected you know like the the memes that that's a, but the memetics like the infectious idea like that that thing like you know i've definitely been infected like i cannot it's hard for me to think about other things i have to like rip myself away and like go go to the gym or go hike in the woods to like force myself to not think about this thing um, which is incredible. I never thought I'd be so wrapped up in something and care so much about something, but it's also like, it's also a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, like if you went and just like effed off for the day, like went to the beach or just like whatever, like maybe two, two days in a row, like, would you feel like you feel guilty? What, what emotions would you feel while you were not working on Ethereum? No, I, I don't think I definitely some anxiety because like it all keeps moving. Right. Like, because I'm going to open my phone, even if I didn't look at it for two days, I'm going to open my phone, I'm going to have literally 500 messages. And like, many of them are going to be in like, interesting technical conversations that one, I want to follow. And two, uh, I often I often have very strong opinions about all of these conversations. And so like, I want to make sure that I help steer in the direction that I think is is good. Um, and so, you know, if I if I disappear for too long, you know, who knows, it might be steered in that direction. I have to like, try to write the ship right right <laughs> somebody implemented a dpos eip or something um yeah I, I don't mean to i don't mean to imply so i think i, I work a lot mm-hmm. i do and i love and I, I enjoy it uh but i think i actually have like a pretty w- good work-life balance compared to, to some like i go to the gym almost every day i love camping i love hiking i got a beautiful wife that we hang out out with uh, you know plenty of friends that kind of stuff so like i i I pride myself in having a good work-life balance, but I also think I work a ton. So I don't know. There's, I don't know where the line is. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the cool thing about Ethereum is like when uh, I think everyone who finds a job in, in well, probably greater crypto too, is that no one actually feels like they're working. Um, I mean, I'm sure some people do, um, but the, the, the perhaps why this thing has been so sustainable when it comes to infecting your brain is that because like, it doesn't actually feel like work. <laughs> I, Yes, I agree. And simultaneously, uh, it does not feel like working, but it can still be exhausting. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah, no, plenty of things that aren't work are very, very yeah, exhausting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Running a marathon is exhausting, but it's, it's not technically my job. Right. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about like what you're going to do with yourself once Ethereum calcifies? No. Um, I will either not be in technology or I will be working on open source technology. I'm not, I will not be working on closed source technology ever. Um, just as a matter of principle. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't interest me. And also one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing is because, uh, I'm trying to make an impact on the world and I don't think closed source software is the the right way for me to make that impact. Right. Uh, but it's, we'll see, we'll see. It's hard to imagine doing something else. Um, although I certainly will do something else eventually. Um, and yeah, I, uh, my guiding principle is, is to work on things that I, I care about mm-hmm. and to try to create value, not in the sense of like 
lining my pockets with cash, but like fundamentally try to create value. Um, and in doing so, I will continue to open doors and be able to work on interesting things. Mm -hmm. That has worked out for me so far. I'm also a very fortunate, very lucky person in many respects, but um, I figure if I keep doing what I'm doing, keep working on interesting things, keep working with interesting people that um, whatever that next door is, it will, I'll, it'll be, it'll be a good one. Do you see yourself putting the entrepreneur hat back on and building something on Ethereum? Like now, now that you've finished the, the foundation, build, build a product. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think that that would be, I'd have, it'd have to be the right thing and have to be the right people. You know, if there was a person or two that I really, really wanted to essentially hack on a project with for a few years, um, then, then I would. Um, but I'm not, I'm not certain. There's a funny, a funny, um, so I got into proof of stake. So like I, I work on a lot of things, but like I really focus on proof of stake, proof of stake implementations and research and specifications and security and all that kind of stuff. Um, in 2017, right at the beginning, I got rid of all my clients uh, because I had become obsessed with Ethereum and I was going to figure out how to make it work, how to make it my job. Um, and uh, I, for that first probably half year, I, I was just kind of bumbling around. You know, I was, I lived in New Orleans at the time and I thought to myself, if I'm going to be serious about this, I need to go to the New Orleans Ethereum meetup. And there wasn't one. Yeah. So I made, I made the New Orleans Ethereum meetup, you know, and then I, I was like, I had never contributed to open source before, which is crazy because I was a believer in open source and I used it a lot in my projects and stuff, but I had not like gone to a project and just contributed back. So I was also like, just start contributing to anything and everything. You know, I contributed to Piper's web3.py library, Python tooling library for Ethereum um, and, and started just contributing to things. And I, I was wrote a few smart contracts trying to figure out maybe I'll, maybe there's a business opportunity there. And then I, then I was like learning more about this shift, this proof of stake thing coming. And my first thought was, that's never going to work. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, but then, Two, two days later, two weeks later, two months later, I don't remember. Uh, it, it, I was like, oh, I get it. You know, both of these are proof of dedication of economic, scarce economic resource to the protocol. You know, it's easy to prove that about mining hardware and electricity. And it's also easy to prove about the end protocol asset itself. And so I was like, okay, this is starting to make sense. And so I thought, maybe I can make a staking pool. <laughs> and so I started... I started digging into proof of stake because I thought it was coming in like five months mm -hmm. and I thought I could make a staking pool. And so like that, that opened up my, my contributions like that, that, that is why I got into proof of stake. Cause I was like, there might be a business opportunity here. <laughs> and uh, it turned out there was a lot of work to still do. <laughs> so I had to kick the can down the curb on the business opportunity. Um, and I will, I will say wholeheartedly at this point, I have zero intention of making a staking pool. That does not interest me at all at this point. Uh, but that's the, the business opportunity was what actually made me do the dive, the deep dive on proof of stake to begin with. That's, that's pretty funny. You're, I also in 2018 thought about like a model for a staking pool company. And I actually pitched it to this ICO advisory company that I worked for at the time. And uh, uh, Peter Vestness, who was the, uh, the owner of the company, New Alchemy, uh, he said that uh, proof of stake is years away. And I was like, no, it's not, Peter. <laughs> no, it's like right around the corner. It's like six months away. We got to start building this thing. And that was, again, in 2018. Yeah, yeah. I helped write EIP 1011, hybrid proof of work, proof of stake. And at the time, I 
and that was in 2018. I, I was like certain mainnet by the end of 2018. No problem. Right. Like no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny that like um, the 2017 bull market, at least inside of the Ethereum land, everyone was like buying Ether and Ether was running up to $1,400 because people were like speculating that staking is just like Casper's coming. Casper's coming. It's like it's right around the corner, right? <laughs> and in 2020 and 2021, it's the same thing. <laughs> There's a full cycle. It's really coming. It's, re- it's coming. <laughs> I went to the I went to the merge interrupt and and uh, saw some beautiful things. It is actually coming. How was that, by the way? I was thinking about it when you said that work doesn't feel like work, mm-hmm. um, because multiple times during that week in and we were in Greece I was like walking back to my room and just and I get overwhelmed just with like a I'm having a fantastic time like I'm having a great time uh and after having been spending eight hours like in a room with 30 other people like thinking about hard problems and debugging software and all that kind of stuff which like I don't know if uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to consider that having a great time but I was having a great time so um, it was awesome. It was like exactly the right time, exactly the right r- group of people, um, and five times more productive than our wildest dreams. So uh, it was it was very very excellent. Is the in real life component the reason why it's so productive? You think? I would say yes, except yes with an asterisk. The asterisk being that it has to be the right time in a project. It has to be the right group. Like it made a lot of sense because. We're done with London. We're done with Altair, and we have the we have like the core specs for all the stuff. And there was a little bit of lead time so that people could work on and lay the foundations in their software before we met. And so, like all of that, doing all of the other stuff before mm-hmm. probably would have wasted time if we were together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas we got together and we had this like very interesting structure of an interop where most a lot of the software work had been done leading up to it. And what you're doing is you're kind of like pairing off with different groups and, and you're like, can our software work together? Oh, let's fix the bugs. And then, then you switch and you can go with other group and you kind of like architect this pyramid of, of increasing complexity throughout the week. And at the same time, having conversations to iron out, okay, now that everyone has implemented the specs, what are the issues? You know, what do we need to refine? You know, so we, we could have very deep conversations about uh, ironing out the last bits of the specs and at the same time also like do this like culmination thing where we, we get to this mega milestone at the end of the week. And and so, yes, there's magic to being in person, but I, I'm also like a um, decentralization maximalist for, for a lot of it too, because like the value in what I can do at home and writing software and stuff, like it's just a different, it's a different type of exchange. And I, you don't want one or the other all the time. And But it was really nice coming together after like two years of being apart. Right. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people had very similar feelings in uh, New York recently for, for mainnet where uh, a lot of people are, are literally just coming out of their homes for the first time since COVID. And also crypto is very, very different in 2021 than, than pre-COVID times. Like we've actually blossomed into some sort of like society uh, and um, just the, the richness of the social interactions as a res- maybe as a result of that, or just maybe just in general inside of crypto, for some reason, social interactions in, in crypto seem far more rich than all the other social interactions I've ever had in any other context. And I think maybe it's because everyone has like shared stories, shared values, shared like purpose, and is also intellectually, intellectually curious. I think everyone yeah. in crypto is generally intellectually curious. Uh, and then like when you like 
hide people away for two years and then get them and then and then pump their pri- their asset prices by 10x and, and then put them in a room together turns out they yeah. have like a lot of things to share yeah i think that's that's all it's all very true yeah the <clears throat> the thing about the interop and about some other similar events is like how much everyone gives a shit mm-hmm. <laughs> um raises the level of engagement the level of conversation and level of just enthusiasm and fun um whereas i could imagine being in a more traditional business context and like people are there to like do their job but you know there's not a there's not that that giving a shit that that's there also just everyone's so uh aligned on shipping the merge um philosophically uh from a perspective of climate change like all sorts of angles like everyone there was like like they're on a mission like we are doing this thing um whereas you could imagine other things even in ethereum or in crypto there's like less of that like deep 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 mission like state expiry i mean state expiry is incredible like we we need we need a sustainable state solution period end of discussion but it doesn't have that uh as much of this like world changing feeling to it but i'm also very biased i love proof of stake why 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 is proof of stake so grand when it comes to meaning and impact for so many people at the devop event and or, or just the ethereum devs in general one of the big things was was climate change yeah. uh, a lot of people just like uh <clears throat> and i hadn't i hadn't expected how much most of the people at that event were were, were feeling impacted by that like i talk about you know, proof of stake, making things more secure, more sustainable and more scalable all the time. You know, and I mentioned the the reduction in energy usage by like 99.99%, you know, and it, but, and and I think it, it makes an impact to some, but I, I was surprised and I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised throughout the week how often various developers were just like, this is literally the most impactful thing I will ever do with respect to climate change in my life. Like I, I will not be able to uh, uh, like outstep this this accomplishment you know so there was just this like feeling of actually being able to make an impact especially when you you look at estimations and ethereum uses like as much energy as poland or something you know and 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 climbing (laughs) is it simply just a function of ethereum using less electricity or is there a deeper like relationship between proof of stake and climate change or is it simply as simple as just moving away from proof yeah i mean i I think it's if we have crypto economic consensus mechanisms and uh, which the asset securing it, the, the quantity and capital securing the protocol scales with the value of the protocol. Um, when that is energy consumption, um, you quite simply have this like sh- tough relationship between energy consumption and the, and the security and value of the protocol, which like we all want the security and value of the protocol to increase. Um, and so there's a, a bit of a, I guess the dark side to it. Um, and I, look, I, you know, we could, I'm, I don't buy the like Bitcoiner uh, green energy thing or that like Bitcoin is going to usher in the new wave of green energy. I don't, I don't buy that. I think there is probably some nuance to the argument. I think you could have like an interesting debate as to like, if you have these proof of work mechanisms, what does the future look like in 20 years? You know, does it look like Bitcoin using 50% of all the energy in the world? Probably not. It's like, it's hard to imagine that that becomes the reality. Um, and so maybe there's like more nuance into how this this actually ripples outward. But um, nonetheless, I I would uh, I would make a, a pretty grand bet that 80 percent or more of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum's energy consumption is not clean. Right. Um, and 
making an impact on that seems seems meaningful. I think there's also there's other components, not just the um, not just CO two emissions, climate change, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's also the uh, the access and the the potential, like the amount of people that can participate in a proof of stake protocol in a meaningful way, is probably much larger than proof of work. Um, it's also more equitable in a sense that I can very purely turn capital into um, an equitable participation um in in the, the securing the protocol whereas in proof of work like that scales very poorly for small actors so like the the more capital that you have uh, okay. the more entrenched you can get into real world supply chains the more return you can get on your capital and the, the economies of scale and so like you you know fundamentally even you set the energy stuff aside that asset being grounded so much in the real world in not the metaverse uh means that you you don't get kind of the the same equitability in, in the the crypto economic consensus mechanism which one is maybe not nice from a philosophical standpoint but it's also not nice from a security security standpoint was there um any conversations at this interop event about bitcoin and how bitcoin is like bad or needs to change or um should like should be shut down or any sort of like resistance towards bitcoin as a as a system um we don't spend too much time on bitcoin yeah. uh it's certainly it's the butt of jokes sometimes um <laughs> you know i think people people that are working on ethereum proof of stake find bitcoin probably pretty uninteresting mm-hmm. um it's very interesting because it moved the needle you know went from zero to one right. but it uh people also i think tend to find it very uninteresting and then there's certainly toxic there's toxic members of any community um i think if you look at, at twitter there's a lot of uh loud toxic uh bitcoin mm-hmm. members community members and so i think that sometimes when conversations come up with that type of group like we we would focus on that or instead of focusing on maybe some of the good but i don't think we see a lot of the good because we don't we're not deeply rooted in their community and we just see the loud uh toxic people uh, we there <laughs> in conversations we were there was a running joke about um writing a proposal maybe a bitcoin improvement proposal to utilize uh not not our beacon chain not ethereum's beacon chain but a but a beacon chain you know and and instantiate instantiation of uh of uh, the same technology to do a merge uh for bitcoin and to help them get off of proof of work um there are some complexities there in how you actually lock your lock your stake you might actually you might need a new opcode and i know they're pretty resistant resistant to that but I think it'd be pretty fun um, even to just take... As a social experiment. Um, yeah, I mean, literally just like, you know, in 2017, there were 100,000 Bitcoin forks, like Bitcoin Diamond and whatever the hell. Uh, you could you could, you could make a uh, you can make a Bitcoin fork. Once once Ethereum has proven that you can safely move from proof of work to proof of stake, you can make a Bitcoin fork and try to try to rally the world around it uh, using the same technology that we've used in, in Ethereum to, to secure it. I think um, pretty cool. who does that really, really Someone matters, needs to right? do it. Yeah. Well, why not you? <laughs> You're the- That's what I'll do. Once once Ethereum ossifies, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, help Bitcoin. Move to proof of stake. Yeah. <laughs> um what about um Rune Christensen's blog post was a uh, recent blog post. I don't know if you read that or not. Was that a topic of conversation at the interrupt event? I don't know the blog post. I'm sorry. Uh, he was uh, proposing that MakerDAO, with its efforts to go into the real world and search for real world collateral, specifically finds climate aligned collateral, right? So uh, mm-hmm. MakerDAO has already financed like a $2.4 million loan, die loan to a solar panel farm in New York. Okay. 
And then he talked about like, you know, more philosophically, MakerDAO mm-hmm. should find a collateral, like find opportunities to finance and get collateral that is climate aligned and can actually like move the needle with regards to climate change. And then the- yeah, we didn't, it didn't come up a conversation. That's interesting. I mean, there's two different angles there. One is like ride the hype. Like maybe you, you get, you get good press and, right. and it helps make her doubt to just like have this aligned basket. But there's also like, yeah, I think it's more interesting if you can make a compelling uh, business case, you know, maybe the, the thesis is that these are actually the, the types of collateral and the types of businesses that are going to be very fruitful over the next 10 to 20 years. And that's why, you know, MakerDAO is being aligned. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly his angle there. Yeah. Um, my, my angle on it was that like, there's a lot of uh, the very far left social justice warrior cancel culture types that are also very, very anti-capitalism. Um, mm-hmm. And what, what happens if you can like create a money that fights climate change, where if you use this money, you're by proxy, fighting climate change mm-hmm. like you actually might you know, like onboard some of that demographic yeah, that's in, into the world of money and finance and say like yeah we do we do know that money and finance is corrupt and bad but not this money in finance like this money in finance is actually good it's the inverse of that yeah why don't you learn to use money and finance and new coordination techniques to create the world you want to see mm-hmm. yeah totally um so one thing about the the dev uh, interop event and overall like uh, I was joking with, uh, I think, both Ryan and, and Anthony Susano in different contexts about this. Like, from you, you know what it's like to be there and actually to experience it. A lot of us, the non-tech types, view it from a distance, right? View it from Twitter, and we just see the pictures. And so, like, from our perspective, it's like this semi-regular, like, ceremonious time where we see pictures of all these developers looking at this projected screen with a bunch of code <laughs> on it, and they're all happy. They're all happy and clapping. And, and so, like, all the devs are, like, looking at the screen, and they're all, everyone's smiling, and then, like, everyone else is seeing the smiles on the dev's face. And so, for us, it's like, yay, that's the devs are happy. I don't know what's going on, but, like, they're happy, so that's nice. I, I showed that picture to my sister last night. And I showed her the other picture from Ben Edgington's tweet. And I showed her the other picture of um, of the screen we're all looking at. And she just cracked up. She thought it was hilarious. She's like, of course, of course. <laughs> For context, I don't know if it was on that picture, but one of the pictures that was shared, the, the key was there was a tiny little piece of text that said proof of stake stage entered or entered mm. proof of stake stage, you know, and that's what we were all cheering about. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so this is the first mock test net or actual test net for the the merge so you simulated the merge was that what happened right so we kicked off a proof of stake beacon chain Mm -hmm. that was not merged you know like the beacon chain is today in production and we kicked off a proof of work chain that was not merged and was run by proof of work both of these things hung out in parallel for a while and then they uh they did the dance to take the valuable things inside of proof of work and to instead put them into proof of stake and stop listening to proof of work and finalize and, and move on with this business. Um, so it was, it was the, what we were cheering was kind of the culmination of the week, which was we had a lot of very short lived dev nets. So like even just transitory, I have two nodes running on my computer, like running an experiment for 30 minutes and i'm like okay the experiment worked that's good you know and, and we had like i said we had a lot of these different client pairs where like geth and tech geth and teku would like pair up for a bit and like make sure the software worked together and and nimbus and nethermind would pair off and like make sure their software worked together and like we were building out more and more complex versions of all the interactions throughout the week um and but often you know with 
two or three nodes, like nothing crazy, like very small toy networks. And what we did at the end of the week was Perry, who is a, a DevOps wizard at the EF, who has been increasingly taking ownership over uh, test nets and automation and all, all sorts of stuff. He'd been working all week on, on automation of all this stuff. And so he took all the configuration and uh, automated a hundred node deploy around the world. So like hundred different cloud instances around the world uh, with different client pairs and builds and like automated the creation of the, the beacon chain network and the proof of work network and, and, um, and kind of kicked it all into motion. And then it was about, I think they ran independently for about an hour. And then uh, we had it on the projector when they, when the, the trigger event came together and they, and they merged. And so it was really that like taking it from a toy on our laptops and, you know, different like reduction in complexity of different configurations to like bringing it to uh, something that really, you know, felt real. Uh, that network, I think, was torn down yesterday. And there's a new one, Pythos, which is the um, uh, it's supposed to be a longer standing one uh, that is was it launched literally like an hour. It was launched this morning, but like the configurations became available about an hour ago. And I already started seeing some of the East Staker guys. I think Lamboshi was on it. He was already running nodes. And, you know, so now the, the, the community can also interact with it. Um, can you tell us what the sound was like when in the room when that proof of stake mode entered happened? Like, was it was it like. <laughs> Oh yay, neat! Or was it like more about a roar of of people? Like what what what? what I mean, it was it was legitimate, like legitimate joy, legitimate like clapping, not mm -hmm. not just like a little golf clap, right. but like clapping, cheering. Mm -hmm. I, I people I, people literally hugged each other. You know, <laughs> um, it was it was a, it was an incredible ener energy. And we actually we had this closing dinner at seven thirty that night, and the uh, the timestamp that we we did the merge because you proof of works, especially when you're CPU mining a proof of work chain, it's like hard to fully gauge the timing, but it was seven twenty nine. <laughs> it was T minus one minute till dinner. Like we were either going to go to dinner, like super fucking excited and floored about what just happened or like kind of with our heads hung, like the last chance of running this experiment, it failed and it was a success. And like, we kind of, we all just went to dinner after and had a, had a great evening celebrating. <laughs> That's so yeah a minute before you you have to go to dinner so I, I'm sure maybe some amount of clapping was like oh thank god we get to go to dinner <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I mean I I doubt I, mean, I think we were all a bit a bit late for dinner but it was um the the timing couldn't have been couldn't have been better it couldn't have been more suspense inducing dramatic yeah yeah did, did you get shivers uh I probably not I got something yeah. I got what I needed to get uh in a completely different direction. Um, is your wife a crypto person? Yes. Okay. Kind of. Does she understand like what you're up to? My wife works for the Ethereum Foundation. Oh, okay. So she. Oh, well, there, there's the answer to that question. Yeah. I didn't, was was yeah. she there with you? Um, she uh, she used to be a pastry chef mm -hmm. in, in, a, in, a, in a French restaurant in the French Quarter in New Orleans, and I started traveling a bunch for work, and so us being you know young and having fun, it was like, well, definitely quit your job and come travel internationally with me a bunch. Um, and she got to know some of the people on the grants team and they needed someone to help like answer emails and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so she started as the person who helped answer emails and stuff. And then like three or four months later was the team lead. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. So like yeah. when you, when you were like, a, I mean, you work at home, but when you quote come home from work and like vent about stuff, like she's like, oh God, the, 
the guys from Teku were just up so annoying today. Is, 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 is that some of the conversations that, that go on? We some some yes. Yeah. I certainly. I she knows what I'm when I'm bitching about something. She knows what I'm bitching about, <laughs> um, and uh, and she understands things enough to like when I describe some issue i'm banging my head against the wall she like understands the domain of the issue you know but it's also sometimes we'll be like driving into the mountains uh for for a weekend and we'll just be like talking about ethereum be like we gotta stop no no more (laughs) like we we like i can literally talk about ethereum all day Mm -hmm. to the people on the internet and then i can like go have dinner and talk about Ethereum more Mm -hmm. and it's uh it's very cool but it's also sometimes a little much eric connor who is the first ever guest on on layer zero we were talking about this dynamic where like you literally can wake up and do ethereum things until you go to bed uh and then repeat that for years uh and then you get what we call this thing called ethereum brain where like you know you just have like toxic levels of ethereum going around in in your brain did uh, but you said you have good work work life balance so so maybe you don't have too much ethereum brain i um I have a good work life balance. I do I do get a step away from the computer. I do make sure I have nice little trips and things like that and I I do go out to dinner and stuff, but I also am I'm, I'm probably toxically infected. <laughs> when when you say you guys go to the mountains, are you hiking or backpacking? Uh, a bit of both, it just kind of depends. Sometimes we'll go stay at a motel in the mountains and and hike around a bit and put around some towns or sometimes we'll go backpacking and my favorite thing is to um, swim in very cold alpine lakes. Mm. So often we'll be hiking up to 13,000 feet to find a nice lake to jump into. Yeah, which was like recently snow a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it just depends. I mean, sometimes there's like snow on the on the outside of it still. Uh, it just depends on the time of the year. I, you know, I think we're at minimum, the minimum snow. Hey, Taika. Um three weeks ago and i think it snowed up in the mountains about a week ago so it, the cycle has begun if your if your cat hadn't come on screen i was gonna ask about it so <laughs> <laughs> um that's Tycho. Tycho. yeah oh how um, old the he's eight eight the yeah. image i have of you we were on zoom at some point in time but there was this time where you had you had Tycho, and Tycho was facing the computer so uh he he yeah. he was fa- he. facing the computer so like kind of like pseudo looking at the camera and you were just like massaging his head it was like <laughs> at least 20 minutes long of like you you I just yeah just like massaging your head while Tycho like kind of looked into the camera right in front of yeah. you i thought it was absolutely hilarious yeah and there he is yeah he uh i mean i i tell Tycho sometimes mm-hmm. Tycho, you're my best friend yeah and i mean it and not in a sad way Tycho's my best friend nice great cat yeah, uh, he spent spent a lot of time working on proof of stake with me. Nice. Yeah, more moral support, Danny. You can do it. Yeah, Danny. So, uh, what what else do you do for fun other than backpacking and hiking? Are you a gamer at all? No. Nope. I probably left gaming behind when I was about thirteen. Okay. I was I played I think Diablo two and StarCraft were my main games at the time. I played a little bit of Counter Strike and stuff, but I um. Music and girls became much more interesting way to spend my time. Playing, so playing I, or listening to girls? No, to music. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, playing. Playing. Wh- playing. What do you play? Um, these days I play mainly piano. But I in high school I played a lot of piano, but also uh, bass. I played in like jazz bands and metal bands. Yeah. Do you, and you still play play piano to this day? When I was eighteen, I went to school and I stopped playing music. Mm. 
And um, about four years ago, I got a piano and I've been, I play about every day. Nice. So I took a hiatus, uh, but I, I play most days now and I, I very much enjoy it. What kind of piano do you play? Mm, I learned some classical pieces um, and, and play that. I also just kind of mess around and I, I do actually, when we launched the, the beacon chain, I bought myself a present. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I got this like Moog synth. So I have a piano and I have this synth uh, next to each other. And like, you know, I, I kind of mess around and make weird electronic stuff uh, between the two. Nice. Have you, have you heard of um, uh, uh, Ben from Optimism, his Ethereum song? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> ever, ever, that was very good. Ever thought about uh, writing something like that? <laughs> Uh, or or is that a, or is that tainting something that's holy that doesn't need to be mixed and maybe you it definitely I think it definitely doesn't need to be mixed. I also I, I I don't think I've ever played the piano and sang at the same time, ah. so it would be a challenge. It'd be a new challenge. Maybe I should try. <laughs> so th- I think it, this question is always much more fun when somebody's actually a musician. What kind of music do you listen to? So in college, my music cha- taste changed mm-hmm. um, because I started coding. No shit. So I stopped listening to music with words, like almost entirely, and started listening to a lot more electronic music. And I listen to like ambient electronic music most of the time. Uh, very experimental, like very like kind of out there sounds and soundscapes and things like that. And I can definitely attribute that to like being in college, drinking that cup of coffee, putting on my headphones and just like coding and like getting into coding for the first time and like what what got me going when i code and like i that radically has changed my music taste and over the past couple of years i've like tried to reintroduce not what i'm coding but like if i'm in the car or different things like that like i'll put on i don't know talking heads or put on like the beatles or put on something where somebody's literally saying words um (laughs) to like pull myself out of the uh the ether but is it because the words are distracting while you're coding or is there something else there? I think so. I think that's probably it. I mean, it, it, it's not just that the words are distracting. It's that these soundscapes are like enhancing. Mm. Um, like I, oh, here's a good one. When I first, in 2017, when I got rid of my clients and I wanted to figure out how to make Ethereum my work, um, I would listen to all the, the all core dev calls and the opening is um steep hills of vicodin tears by a winged victory for a sullen um which yeah (laughs) um so that that became like my anthem for a while like that album like every morning i would just like i'd drink a cup of coffee put on the headphones and like figure out how to make ethereum you know where to bring value to ethereum and i would just like listen to that album and something about the fact that it's the opener to the all core dev call um and that it also kind of fit my ambient soundscape mode. Like it became like my, uh, my power music. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's a great story. Um, Andy, uh, Danny, as we come down to the end of the show, I have just a few more questions for you. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Hmm. I, I used to be an optimist. So when I was a kid, very extremely optimistic, and I think it served me well. And I've realized actually probably over the, over the course of the past 10 years, I've become less of one. So I'm very optimistic about my life. So like I, I you know, I, I have a good life. I have a great cat, got a cool wife. Um, I have a great job, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, so I'm uh, definitely optimistic in social relationships and, and kind of the, the microcosm of my world. Um, but I, 
definitely like the old man like shaking his finger at the rest of the world in a certain sense like i don't i you know i'm super pessimistic about politics i'm super pessimistic about like our you know uh, mass surveillance capitalism i'm super pessimistic about a lot of that kind of stuff um and, and to 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 a way that i i need to make peace with um because i think it, it like gets me a little bit too much um and i also sound like the whack job when i'm talking to uh regular people <laughs> but um the but that's also one of the reasons i work on ethereum you know if you asked me in in 2017 why why i wanted to work on ethereum one nerd sniped totally but two was just like i don't I don't like the trajectory of the world. I don't like what's happening with with big technology. I don't like how we're all super manipulated by our phones and like we have these little slot machines in our pockets and they're just like abusing us. And like, I don't think Ethereum solves all of those problems, but I do think that Ethereum and related technology might help change the trajectory. Um, And I think it might help change the trajectory for good. You never know. You never know. Um, I do worry about that sometimes, you know, like the tools that are are built are often co-opted by the powers that be to kind of continue doing business as usual. I, I do think that Ethereum and related technologies allow for new ways to interact and maybe kind of help avoid some of those previous issues. But, you know, I'm also naive. Well, Danny, I think that that is a fantastic place to end this conversation. So thank you for joining me on this Layer Zero. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers.